This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator Podcast. It is... I've lost track of what day it is. It's been a whirlwind um, working on the podcast, setting up the conference. We're so excited. It's tomorrow. It's here. (laughs) It's very exciting. We have been working so hard at this, right? For like the last year, really. So, I mean, if I mean... Anybody listening who's been a part of conference planning, you know, it's it's so highly anticipated. And then there's so many things at the end just to get done, you know, but we're um, we're really hoping to provide a unique experience for our going to be this week. the bomb, as they say uh, <laughs> in high school. Um, no, the reason I'm saying this is because, you know, we what was very interesting, I was I was sort of reflecting with Rooney on this today was um, we had a vision for this about a uh-huh. year and a half ago. And it's so uh-huh. amazing to see that we've, I think that's probably as a group, one of our collective talent is that we're able to effectuate those visions pretty well. And so it's kind of nice to see everything coming together. Um, so this is uh, beyond excited. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be able to get some sleep. So we'll be ready to go. The, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're excited about the conference. I think we have like very few, like we have, I don't know, I think like 10 seats left. So if uh-huh. you have a, a spur of the moment, you could still come. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're, we're uh, I think somebody saw, I think there's one person who reached out to me to ask if they could submit like a last minute poster slash idea. And I was like, yeah, like, why not? For sure, um, for sure. Okay, so um, we have a, a very so the one thing I wanted to say was that we have our conference Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and we will give the incubator team and audience break next Sunday. <laughs> so do not. So we haven't. So if you don't see an episode next week, we're taking a one Sunday break so that we could come back. And it's yeah. worth noting that since we started the incubator nearly two years ago. We've not taken a single week off. No, I think what I'll do is that need, I'll probably we, we did need this this one. I'll probably I'll probably post one of our favorite episodes as a as a replay if people oh. missed it. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, so there'll be an episode, but we just won't have like a new episode next week, and we'll come right back the following week with board review and uh, journal club. So that's exciting. Um, definitely, okay. we have a we have a an unusual episode format today. Can you can you tell us about that? 
That's right. We really wanted, as part of our Giants in Neonatology series, we really wanted to honor the legacy of Dr. Mildred Stallman, who unfortunately is not really up up for an interview. So we've done something a little bit unique, um, and we have um, collected uh, one of her uh, former fellows and colleagues and a writer who is um, authoring Dr. Stallman's biography with us on today to help kind of describe um, her career and this legacy that she left. So um, I'll introduce them and then they will introduce Dr. Stallman to all of us. So um, we first have with us um, Dr or retired professor and neonatologist, Dr. Elizabeth Perkett, who really is a giant of neonatology uh, in her own right. She had a distinguished career in neonatology and pediatric pulmonology at both Vanderbilt and New Mexico universities. She's one of the first pediatric subspecialists to be board certified in both of those fields. She trained in neonatology under Dr. Mildred Stallman at Vanderbilt and then later returned as a colleague of Dr. Stallman for 20 years and a lifelong friend. And uh, Corey Nason Reese is a writer and editor uh, who specializes in healthcare and education. She's a graduate of the William Allen White School of Journalism at the University of Kansas and has freelanced for 30 years writing articles for newspaper journals and professional organizations. She befriended Dr. Stallman 20 years ago as well and is tasked with collecting her life stories to write her bio- biography. So we are so happy to have on Dr. Beth Perkett and Corey Nason Reese with us today. Dr. Beth Perkett, uh, Corey Reese, thank you so much for being on the show with us this morning. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, you know, we've started with your bios, but we'd love to hear a little bit um, more specifically from you guys about why you took on this mantle um, of kind of cataloging um, Dr. Stallman's um, life's work. Well, I'll start. Um, I joined Dr. Stallman's nursery in 1974 as a fellow um, mm. and basically have interacted with her for the rest of my life. She is one of those remarkable people without even just addressing her neonatology, which is what we're addressing today. But um, it's just a powerful presence in my life and everyone's life. So I think it's... Uh, a noteworthy person that should be recognized um, for who she is and what she's accomplished. And over the years, I met Corey, who thankfully has the skills to be putting together a biography and trying to truly document what's going on with Dr. Mildred Stallman. Thanks, Beth. Those are such nice words from you. Um, I got into this because I am a healthcare writer, but my husband is actually a neonatologist. Jeff Reese at uh, Vanderbilt, and he went in 87. A, a star, a star in his own right. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like to think so. But um, anyway, he went in 1987. He came to Vanderbilt for uh, pediatrics. And Dr. Stallman was at the end of her hands-on world with uh, her career with uh, nursery. And she turned it over you know, a few years later. But she was still doing rounds and uh, once a week, and they were called Millie rounds, and they were daunting. You were expected to know all your P's and Q's. And at that point, I met her, but I was too junior of a writer to even like approach her. So uh, through Jeff's career, we ended up back at um, ben, at Nashville, 
at Vanderbilt in 2002. And um, then I was thrown into her circle and uh, was I escorted her to a lot of things uh, when Jeff was busy. And she's she, um, for you may not know, she never married and never had children. Uh, her family is uh, dispersed. Her She's got a couple of nephews that live close to her. So um, as my career went along, I had the chance to meet and interview some very senior neonatologists. And I thought, you know, holy cow, if I'm getting to meet them, we should approach Dr. Stallman about, could I be your biographer? And unknowns to me, other people had, had approached her. But by this point, she's getting to be her late 80s. And so I think she was more receptive because she never was before. And so we approached her. And um, some of the things, if you don't know Dr. Stallman, she's four foot, like maybe five foot, four foot 11, maybe five foot tall, like 101 pound. She's this little tiny lady. And uh, <laughs> but she, as Beth will attest, has kind of a spicy language. She um, she could. uh, uh uh, speak with, um, let's just say, um, I anyway, it's spicy. And so we approached her and said, you know, Jeff and I sat down with her. I said, Corey would like to write your biography. And um, I'll modify, but she goes, I don't know what the heck you're going to write about. <laughs> so that began, wow. um, um, you know, if you've seen the, there's like a book called, is it Mondays with Maury or something like that? Luncheons with, anyway. So we began to sit down and have lunch and we rolled the tape and um, she's uh, told me stories and, and it began a, for me, a, just a wonderful um, career of, you know, I hate to tell you, but that was like 2009. So the, the book I hope to write is <laughs> keeps getting interrupted, but along the way, it's been a real blessing to be able to interview some of the greats, um, Paul Swire and uh, Bill O and Fred Battaglia. I mean, there's been, just neonatology is a, is a young enough field that the greats are still around. So that's mm-hmm. how that embarked. And hopefully now, uh, we hope in the next, I hope in the next year that I can actually write her bio. That's exciting. That's exciting. Well, you're going to have to get your list of interviews then so we can make sure we, <laughs> we tackle them as yeah. well. Um, and that's kind of what I've heard about Dr. Stallman, just from a personality uh, perspective, that she was like, tough, but also quite kind and, and fair. And that's kind of a hard uh, line sometimes to toe in medicine. Well, Beth can certainly address it because she lived it. But I um, I interviewed uh, one of her fellows, uh, Frederick Serenius in, in Sweden. And he made the comment that uh, he was a fellow over here, and we'll get to that. She, in a, she um, trained many international fellows. But they would have like three o'clock Friday. And I don't know if Beth, if you ever did this, did you ever do journal club with her? Oh, definitely. And so she would be three o'clock and you would, you would, I should have you tell, but at the, at three o'clock, the journal club would start and go till four. And maybe she, she challenged you a few times, Beth, on the journal club. And at four o'clock said, oh, it's four. Let's go to the university club and have a beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, she, uh, you know, everything she did was with full passion. She didn't do anything halfway. So if you did journal club, you did it, it ended. And if then it was TGIF and going to the faculty club, you quit, you did it. 
and um, you switched into uh, the mode of you know congenial. You left. You definitely left work behind when you switched to the next uh, piece, so that she didn't tolerate you being wishy washy mm -hmm. about anything, um, which I think is just a mantra for all sorts of things. For Christmas carols, you knew all the verses. She couldn't <laughs> sing. She didn't have any voice, but she knew the word of every single verse in line so that that everything was complete in terms of what she did. And I think that's part of where she influenced everybody, that you really admired um, that approach. Yeah, it sounds like uh, she had uh, words sharpened like knives huh? from from the <laughs> the the articles that you've written and uh, from the stories that you're uh, telling us. But for the people who who may not be so familiar with with her story and um, and and with who Dr. Stallman was, can you um, can you give us a, a brief overview of of where her career lies in the context of neonatology? Because I think. Uh, her career really took place um, at a very crucial moment in our field where where really things were getting off the ground. And obviously, she played an instrumental role in in getting these advances uh, off the ground. So I'm just curious if um, I had the I had the pleasure and, and you sent us your your most recent uh, article that was published in the American Journal of Physiology, uh, Lung, Cellular and Molecular Physiology, which Sounds so technical as a journal title, but the article is basically a, a short uh, historical review of Dr. Stallman's life, and we'll we'll post the link on our on our website for people who are interested. But for the people who haven't had the pleasure of reading this article, can you uh, walk us through a little bit as to when her career started and and what are some of the challenges she faced and and potentially the path she could have taken away from neonatology um, along the way, but somehow always made her way back uh, to neonatology. So Dr. Stallman's from um, Nashville, Tennessee, and was born in 1922. And um, part of the story, it, her story that always amazes me is that this could come, this woman, this development could come out of Nashville, Tennessee. Right now, Nashville is a hip, it kind of city. But in those days, it was small and known for country music. So... Um, That in itself is, is uh, amazing. I think the fact that her father her f and their family was a newspaper editor and um, was at one point was president of the, the, like the American uh, newspaper publishing, I think helped put it on the, the map. But um, she eventually, uh, she went to um, Vanderbilt. Her dad was on the board of trust. Um, I think one of the things about Dr. Stallman's life is... And maybe everyone, if I interviewed all of you, there's a big part that in either serendipity or providence, depending on your perspective, really played a part because she entered into Vanderbilt right when World War II, she entered in 1940, when World War II was just on the cusp and Vanderbilt condensed its program to six years for medical school and um, undergraduate. And the men, were, okay. a lot of them were leaving. So she was one of four in her medical school class. She finished it. They went year round. She finished it in three years. And then wow. again, it's, um, and her class is amazing. Uh, who she ended up with. She's an APGAR and a Howland winner, award winner. Uh, and I think she had another one or two people in her class. So it was 
just quite a conversion of talent. And so then she, she wants to, I think she, at that point she knows she wants to do pediatrics, but a lot of the schools um, were not accepting women. And so she ended up at Cleveland. I think it was called Western Reserve. And she did her rotating internship there. And then she goes to Boston. And um, although she didn't talk about it, Clement Smith was there. We all know he's, you know, one of the fathers. But so she was at least under his tutelage. She didn't ever mention him to me, nor did I find that she's written about him specifically in their interactions. But she might have been too junior. So she comes mm-hmm. back to Vanderbilt. And um, here's where um, Providence Serendipity comes in. Um, a very um, famous uh, pediatrician from Europe was invited to come. His name is Arvid Walgren and uh, was one of the most famous pediatricians in Europe at the time. And we're done with World War II. And from my perspective, you would expect it to be Germany or France, but those two city countries had been decimated. So he comes to he comes to um, Nashville and has a visiting um, professorship for a couple of months, and um, in the, and then they establish a, a between Karolinska that's where it was in Stockholm where he was from, and uh, which is a famous institute and and Vanderbilt and they establish a, an exchange fellowship, and and Dr. Stallman's the first one chosen, and. You, you kind of shake your head, you know, why her? So she goes to um, Sweden in 1949 and 50 and studies under John Lynn and Petter Karlberg, which are, again, very famous early uh, pioneers in this, uh, in studying the fetal phys- or in newborn physiology and fetal physiology and cardiopulmonary research. And she'd never really done research. She talks about that, that really, um, that sparked her interest. And um, as you know, we'll talk about later, it changed her life as far as her academic career, her outlook on things, because Swedish is, was Sweden has a lot of, uh, had a lot of uh, healthcare delivery that was very uh, regionalized and um, uh, not private. It was a, you know, a government. And so she changed like from conservative to her liberal in her, in her, in her uh, outlook. So anyway, she comes back after a year of that, um, does a, a does a six month um, cardiology kind of a fellowship in Chicago um, at Ravida, Ravida. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, and does cardiology and comes back to Vanderbilt and doesn't like it. Uh-huh. I think I don't know if it was too tough. I was like, oh my gosh, because they were interested in cardiology in Sweden, and um, I think here is one of her big her big forks in the road because she said, I didn't like it. And I thought I might go down to Destin, Florida, where her family had a, a mm-hmm. summer home and be a pediatrician because there weren't any at the time. And you think, wow, that would have changed the world. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, at that point, Vanderbilt brings in a, um, a cardiologist who is a strong physiologist named Elliot Newman. And he invites her into his, she's unhappy with her practice, and she invites her into her lab. And she begins then her study of um, physiology. They get a small grant, and she's, uh, she, she's got the cardio training, and she's interested in the, in the uh, pulmonary aspect. And um, so she studies that and um, gets her small grant. And then begins interacting. She sets up her sheep lab, and, and uh, Beth can tell you more about that. 
sets up her sheep lab where they're beginning to do catheterizations on sheep. And in the process, she interacts with, I think in Europe, with um, Jeffrey Dawes and um, then um, uh, Barron in, um, Don Barron in Yale. And I find out she's going there and studying with him. Um, and this is out of the late 50s. And she hasn't even done babies yet. She's doing sheep. And then goes up with Stan James and, and in Virginia Apgar's nursery and begins to learn catheterization. So you can just see the snowball. And then uh, Elliot Newman says to her, well, why don't you apply for a Vega grant? And the, uh, the heart, inst- uh, if you get that right, the heart institute, I think, is, Did- gives her, instead of an $11,000 grant, a $125,000 grant. And they set up right. a lab next <laughs> to the newborn nursery. And that, um, which at that time was an extraordinary amount of money. Also, uh, I mean, that's a big grant now, but <laughs> big grant. I, I think in the art, yeah. in the article, you you mentioned that the in today's equivalent that would have been about one point two million dollars. So yeah. so so yeah, yeah. so one hundred twenty five thousand at the time was was significant. Um, but before before um, before we um, bring back Dr. Perquet, I wanted to then so then so then she really um, is the person who establishes one of the first NICUs in, in the world. Um, and, and, and in the article, you do mention that um, she gets, she gets really passionate about, about the care of, of newborns. And I think her interest in pulmonology and her background in cardiology really sets her up for um, trying to, or wishing to understand and, and solve the problem of uh, what we call today, respiratory distress syndrome, which at the mm-hmm. time was called Highland membrane disease. Um, and that grant really gives her the latitude from an institutional standpoint to to explore this this avenue because as you mentioned and i quote from the article it says that uh, the, the the carrot for the hospital administration was that every baby that i studied in that nursery if it had hyaline membrane disease and we studied that baby their hospital bill would be covered by this nih grant that that they had received mm-hmm. and so it really was it was a uh, brilliant way actually to get funding and uh, revolutionary care really for for babies it was remarkable actually the way she was able to spin right. that um and so and so then in in the in the in the article i think it's fascinating that in 19 you mentioned in 1961 <clears throat> there's this this first opportunity that presents itself to her where a baby that's born about uh 2 months uh, prematurely, which I'm assuming would be around like 32, 33 weeks mm-hmm. with severe highly membrane disease, uh, whose father was in training as a, as a senior medical student at Vanderbilt is, uh, given very poor prognostic survival, uh, statistics and, and, and with, in a, in a, in a shared decision making with the family, they agree that they would, they would let her try to, uh, apply some of the, of the knowledge that she has to try to solve, uh, to, to, to heal this baby. And at the time, what's interesting is that, um, the, the, the ventilators that she's using are basically mm-hmm. adapted from, um, the, polio epidemic with these iron lungs basically that are made sort of miniature so that they could fit a baby inside and and it's interesting how even though positive pressure ventilation in the future sort of really becomes the mainstay of treatment she still uh, at the time is is of the opinion that negative pressure ventilation would be both beneficial from a pulmonary standpoint and from a cardiac standpoint in terms of improving uh diastolic filling and so on so at the time and and then she eventually uh uh um uh, 
turns the corner when it comes to the evidence. As the evidence comes out on positive pressure ventilation, she definitely adopts it. I don't want. I don't mean to say that she was reluctant, but at the time, that was the tool that they had available. And that uh, in the in the paper, you mentioned how she basically is staying at the baby's bedside continuously for days on end, and eventually the baby does survive um, and ends up becoming. Uh, uh, the, the baby ends up going to college and so on. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a great story. And she says, if their baby hadn't survived, I think I would have quit or done something else. So um, can, can, is there any other, any other stories or any other inklings as to the challenges that, or the pressure that she was under when, when she first established this, this special nursery? I think one of the differences perhaps in the, NICU that Dr. Stallman started is she came from being a researcher, from being a mm -hmm. physiologist. And I think if we look at many people, they were physicians, they were caring, they were looking at better ways to under the physiology, but they went from the clinical to the research and then maybe back and forth. So when she set up her nursery, she wanted to have the, the same exactness she could have in the research lab. And so that she, physiology was hugely important as far as doing blood gases, measuring pressures, understanding what was going on in this baby as a physiologist. And so um, I do think that brought her in a different way, in a different perspective. And as you mentioned, the cleverness of getting the patient's care paid for was part of what, who she was. She was a realist. You know, that this is the way something should be done, but it wasn't going to happen in a private school like Vanderbilt without being paid for. And that's kind of how she implemented many things, including when they went to regionalization as such, is that she took her exacting knowledge as a researcher, but then had to put some realism in it to make it happen, you know, in the clinical mm -hmm. setting. Um but that, that makes her, I think, a little bit different than some of the other researchers, clinicians, and back and forth. I had the opportunity to talk recently to her fellow, one of her fellows who was there at the time. And um, I said, you know, this is huge. Was she afraid? Was she mm -hmm. anxious? He's like, nope, you just did it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think she, you know, she doesn't have a partner to go home and say, what do you think I should do? And um you know, once they, I think she was fearful that first, that first week and the weaning off was what she was really concerned about. Um, yeah. But I think once it happened and I talking to her, speaking to her mother, the baby's mother, she said, they came in and talked mm. to me and then I never saw her again in the nursery. Mm. The, the dad can go in the nursery because he was a medical student, but I like, oh, mm. you went home and um Dr. Stallman was not, is not good, wasn't good. Um, by the way, Dr. Stallman is 100. She mm -hmm. lives about 10 minutes from me in Nashville. She mm -hmm. lives in a restored um, log cabin that she put two log cabins together in 1965 or 66. It's modernized, obviously. It has great home care. Um, physically healthy. She does have dementia, so we... Um, uh, we're glad we gathered her memories when we could. Um, but um, she was a, um, it, uh, I don't know where her fearlessness came from, but there was some real fearlessness, fearlessness there. 
And you do need fearlessness because I think mm -hmm. it's a very lonely endeavor when you're trying something uh, for the first time that's not. I mean, I think it's it's kind of comfortable for us today. We have uh, practices that we can say are evidence-based and we put them in place and we're like, okay, well, we, we have this paper that has documented that this works and so on. But when you're starting something innovative and new and a baby's life is in the balance, it's it's. Mm -hmm. I, I can only imagine how immensely stressful that must be yeah. and how immensely lonely you feel where it's really your reputation and so i completely understand her reaction when she says well if this baby hadn't make it i would have i would have done something mm -hmm. else i think it's it's extremely extremely tough now dr perquette i mean i wanted to ask you because you you joined dr stallman in 1974 if i'm correct when when you yes. uh when when you went for your uh, neonatal perinatal medicine fellowship and you your your educational track up until that point did not really revolve around vanderbilt i mean you you had done your your college degree in, in Michigan and medical school in Michigan. And, and so what was the, uh, the thought process that you had in, in joining Dr. Stallman at Vanderbilt instead of maybe another institution? God knows there, was, there were great institutions all around. Just, uh, yeah, what was the thought process there? Um, she was certainly well-known as one of the places to go. And it's a little bit of serendipity. She needed somebody, and I don't remember who talked to whom, but I got a letter saying, do you want to come? And I went, yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> now, it ended up, you all think of fellowships as, as structured, organized mm. beings. For Millie, actually at the time I was there was when boards were just starting. And mm. one day Millie came in to us, and, and one for her office. She had, there was one big office, desk was in the middle, everybody else was in the room. We did not have separate offices. You were So you heard all her conversations. But one day she walked in and said, I have to write some board questions. Would you all write them for me and show them? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and so we're sitting here writing. It was a different time. It was a different time. Yeah. <laughs> but, but for her, she had some ambivalence about fellowships being so structured because mm. she included cardiology people, physiology people, adult mm -hmm. people. And she saw the development of a fellowship in some way of, of limiting who you put into having input into your thought process. Not that you didn't ultimately need it um, as such. So she, as a mentor, wouldn't fit what a lot of people define as a mentor this person who takes you under their wing and gives you guidance and listens to you through your ups and downs. But I think a lot of mentorship can just providing you the environment. So just mm -hmm. in a way, by sitting in the same office as Dr. Mildred Stallman, you heard all sorts of conversations with all these other giants in neonatology and mm -hmm. what discussions were going on about different therapies and such. So... Um, you know, it was the experience and, you know, you put together your mentorships. I mean, everybody likes to talk about the perfect mentor, which is wonderful when you when you get that. But I think you can also get it by putting pieces together. And one of the things she provided was an incredibly uh, experienced environment of not just exposure to her, but of exposure to everything that was going on in neonatology. 
from being being French myself, reading reading the the short article and listening to you guys, it does remind me of a three star kitchen mm-hmm. where um, there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's. I mean, I'm sorry. It, it it's not demeaning. I mean, again, I am French. To us, the kitchen is probably the the, <laughs> the, the highest <laughs> level. But you know, uh, it it does feel like um, this three star Michelin chef that has extremely high expectations where everything is defined by the quality of the care that is being delivered. And I think where a lot of things that if you look from an outside perspective can seem very harsh sometimes, but for the people inside, it feels absolutely expected. Is that, is that, is that wrong to think like that? No, I actually, I like uh, that, especially now that we have all these cooking shows with these demanding <laughs> chefs, you know, <laughs> I've never thought of thinking That's of Millie it. as the chief chef who, you know, comes <laughs> in and, um, you know, if you, she could pick up charts and slam them down um, if that what they weren't complete and such. But it, but actually, I, I I like that picture because in fact, you know, it's the perfection of the meal, and for her, it was the perfection of the care. And you might or might not achieve it, um, but you better be better next time. You no, know, as far as whatever went on. But yeah, no, that's a great. And and and, and she had the knowledge of all the steps, right? Just like right. just like a, <laughs> a, a chef. A chef could could cook anything that needs to be cooked in the kitchen because they've gone through this this formative period. And so I feel like she also could very much <laughs> do any procedure at the bedside. And so I think I think anyway that's what so that's why I was thinking about that. But go ahead, Daphne. I'm sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you. This episode is so proudly sponsored by Reckett Meet Johnson. Reckitt Me Johnson is dedicated to the research and development of nutrition products that help support baby development at every stage, including an extensive infamil portfolio for premature and low birth weight infants. Learn more at hcp.meetjohnson.com. No, well, I think what you're describing is we talk about this on the podcast all the time is like medicine, especially as we progress, is becoming more and more siloed and more and more specialized when neonatology really requires um, the integration of so many, um, you know, all of the body systems and all of the really subspecialties, you know, that we encounter um, in in pediatrics. Um, And what I think is really interesting about Dr. Stallman's story and your career, um, Dr. Perkett, is really neonatology is so young of a field that like her career encompassed all of neonatology. And I think for those of us who are, you know, early career, neonatology right now is is so different than it was, um, you know, when you started as as a fellow and so much has changed over that time in terms of medicine, in terms of the hierarchy, in terms of technology. Um, but to really see an entire field developing before your eyes and, and talking about being innovators and being brave enough to try new things. Um, I'm hopeful that you can talk to us about some of those experiences um, that you yourself had um, during those those early days, but again, seeing the evolution of, of neonatology, something that we really take for granted, right? Uh, good ventilation, surfactant, um, things that um, are part of our everyday arsenal that just were non-existent when when this all started. I, th- I think at the beginning, you really had to solve a lot of your own problems, and so you referred to ventilation and using the negative pressure ventilators and then getting the positive pressure. So at the time I started, we had 
the baby birds, which were mm. pressure time cycled, and and we had a board, which was a volume ventilator, which was pretty crude. And they none of those ventilation techniques were really good. And Millie understood the need for the gentleness of ventilation. But what could she do? These were the tools you had. So what she did uh -huh. is she trained, they were called technicians. And the training program, I'm told, was extraordinarily rigorous. Most people failed. And I actually don't know what the requirements were to take it. These were not nurses. But these, and they were all women, had incredibly gentle hands and insight into how to care for a baby. And as a fellow, if you didn't listen to the technician, you, you know, you were out. But when the ventilator wasn't working, these women could ventilate the babies by hand. And so they used an wow. anesthesia bag, and they would ventilate a baby for hours. Um, wow. So that... It, so they were the the early respiratory therapists then. Well, they were more than respiratory. They were ventilators. Yeah, I mean, they were the sure. they were the better yeah. ventilator, Amazing. you know, as far as, as than the than the machines. The machines, wow. but I mean, I think that was an example of you couldn't just say, "Hey, this ventilator isn't working very well. Call RT." No, it was your <laughs> problem mm -hmm. to solve it. Mm -hmm. And so, and as a fellow, I knew how to put the ventilator together. I mean, you had to, if something happened, you had to be able to put the ventilator together. Um, you really had to solve all of your problems. With her knowledge of physiology, you know, she worried about blood volumes. I mean, she measured cardiac output. Well, if you take 5 ml for a blood gas, and for monitoring, mm -hmm. she wanted frequent blood gases. So what Oh, 5 ml. Yeah, so what sometimes <laughs> happened is... Um, we would be cross-matched to a baby. So one of the things that you went to the blood bank, they did all the screening, and then you were cross-matched. You were the blood donor for that baby. Wow. And if you had to draw a lot of blood from a baby, then you drew 5 ml from me and gave it right back to the baby. And wow. it was actually really, you know, stable for the baby to not lose that. That's right. You really hoped your baby didn't need an exchange transfusion because that was a little, <laughs> you had to get a whole unit drawn from you. But I think, you know, the people in that age had to figure out how to solve problems. Um, eventually, the blood bank decided they couldn't do that anymore because they were worried that <laughs> It wasn't that we weren't screened, but that we weren't putting the right amount of heparin in the blood we drew from us, you know, to give back to the baby and such and um, such. But I think, you know, neonatology in that era, you had to solve your own problems. And I think it addresses what you had to know all aspects of what was going on with the baby. You know, you weren't just focused on, oh, I'm a ventilator person or I'm a, you know, this person. Mm -hmm. And I think um, this leads me to my next question, because I think in the article, you do mention this, that Dr. Stallman had this uh, knack for being very curious. And I'm wondering how that curiosity, um, how do you think that curiosity manifested itself and how did, do you think it helped her um, continuously evolve, I guess? I think um, the example that we gave about her, her transition from negative pressure ventilation to positive pressure ventilation is a product of that curiosity. But I'm just wondering if you can speak to that a little bit more. Well, you know, I, I think 
you know, everything was kind of fascinating to her, which is probably part of why she knew so many people in the field and why she was willing to go and it didn't feel compelled to just stay in her one area, um, mm -hmm. which kept her mind open um, and uh, allowed her to have a lot of people influence her. Yeah, Beth, talk about her... Um her extra, or I'm going to say her non-medical world was so broad and Beth involved, mm -hmm. it was involved in a lot of those things that is kind of, uh, will also illustrate her curiosity. It wasn't just in, I mean, she was a Renaissance woman. So talk about some of those fun things that y'all did with um, her uh, non-medical world. But she, one of her mentors, Dr. Mary Phillips Gray, who she ultimately, they were collaborators, she walked in one day and said, Dr. Gray has never been to the Grand Canyon. She wants to raft the Grand Canyon. So meet us in Las Vegas, and we're going down the Grand Canyon. <laughs> and so it ended up there was a neonatologist in Denver who had retired to being a, setting up a rafting service through the Grand Canyon. Mm. So we we get there. And we start down, and she had picked a tour that had an archaeologist talking, but she had read all of Powell's book. You know, she knew wow. everything about rafting the Grand Canyon. You know, so she just read continuously. And so as we're rafting through the Grand Canyon, she can tell you all the history of, well, this is where his boat did this, this is what happened. Uh -huh. And that you know, it was kind of typical of anything you did. When you arrived, um, we had meetings in Europe and such, and when you arrived there, um, she knew the history. She she just read continuously. She actually never was much of a TV person. And mm -hmm. as she got older, people tried to get her to get cable, and she never would. So she <laughs> just read books and um Things like you know, Santa Fe Opera. She basically introduced me to the Southwest because she had read so much about it. So here's this woman from Nashville who's always lived in Nashville mm -hmm. and knew more about the Southwest than all sorts of people. So um, I think that's she just loved reading and loved learning about everything in the world. She was also blessed with a tremendous memory. She could recite um, your Burns poetry. You know, your Burns nights that you would have when you read poetry, mm -hmm. uh, Beth? Yeah, so we, you know, January's kind of a blah month, so oh. she decided we would have a Burns supper because we had a couple postdocs um, from Scotland. And so um, she could flip open the book and read any of the Bobby Burns poetry as <laughs> we sipped a little bit of single malt. <laughs> 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 but she had uh, she here she came from a newspaper family and was introduced by her father. I'm uh, and the more I learned about her father, he was a rascal sometimes, but he had a great, I think, um uh, exposure to the world and famous people. There's a uh, a mountain in uh, Antarctica named at by um Admiral Byrd was a friend of their family, named it after Stalin. So her dinner wow. table growing up, um, her, her mm -hmm. parents did split early, uh, which was scandalous at the time. Um, but her dad was very prominent. And the people that came through, she was an avid equestrian. And her mother was taking her to pony shows when she was young. 
And then, um, you know, all these things that were happening in her life that she was exposed to, this wonderful memory. She can, I mean, in the 90s, she could recite things she had memorized in high school. So I think between her, she's just so curious in this great memory. And then, uh, you know, having, we talked about her courage, but she was willing to, yes, I'll try that. And and, um, I'll go to Sweden and I'll go to Cleveland. And Mm -hmm. so um, I think that, and then just having the, she never, you know, she, her family had, had some money, but she didn't have a lot of money, but she did travel. I think she actually went to England and met Jeffrey Dawes and travel was a big part of her life and that exposure. Yeah. So the, I think that's uh, the Mount Stallman. There is a, a, a mountain in Antarctica named Mount Stallman and it's, right. she has the little piece of rock in a little box and I asked mm-hmm. her about it and she said, Oh, you know, when Admiral Byrd came, I took him to school for show and tell. Well, I think this story just is such a good reminder for those of us about how important our hobbies are, our extracurriculars are, at keeping our mind open to like new ideas and, and, and innovation. And so many of us lose that once we enter medicine. But this is, I mean, she dedicated her whole life to medicine, but her life was still so full outside of medicine. And I think that brings me, you know, there's still other things. She, we talked a lot about her work in physiology, um, but it also, I think it shows how much neonatology was changing over her career, um, where she was um, a pioneer in regionalization of care, uh, neonatal transport, and then really starting to get into the ethics of, of neonatal care. So I hope you guys will speak a little to that as well. Yeah, Beth well, definitely the, addressed the regionalization because she talks about in Sweden, she saw that kind of pattern where you didn't have tertiary care in every hospital. And Beth was right in to do it. She's the expert. Yeah, the, the reason I got the job offer is they wanted a fellow to do transports. And I did something like 200 transports my first year. <laughs> so the, she'd gotten the grant through the state. Um, and it paid for the van, which the van was a full intensive care unit. It had blood gas machines, we had ventilators, we had tanks, everything, because she knew the rural hospitals in Tennessee had nothing. And what I was told is the year before we started that half of the babies arrived dead on arrival at Vanderbilt. They were just thrown in an ambulance, mostly without a transport incubator. And so um, the regionalization was started, but also she knew it wasn't just about having a good ambulance and a crew to go pick up the baby, is you needed the OB part, that mom was the best transport incubator. And so she started fighting to get the mothers transported. Well, she didn't have the care of their care would be paid for, which did provide some challenges and um in terms of getting the moms there, but we also, it included an education program. So when we weren't transporting babies, we were visiting every hospital in Middle Tennessee to give them an educational update of how to stabilize the baby, what to do, and how, when to call. So it was a massive switch, but it, from babies arriving, DOA and regular ambulances, to this whole program that encouraged maternal transport, 
that did education and transport the babies. And so I think it was kind of like anything she instituted. It was not done halfway. You know, you mm-hmm. when you started it, you totally did it. So I think the band, as typical administratively, the grant paid for a driver and a nurse Monday through Friday, eight to five. I'm not quite (laughs) sure sure. what your experience is as far as how many babies you've admitted between Monday and Friday, eight to five. So so another fellow learned to drive the van, and we would go (laughs) into the nursery, and we would say, is there anybody, any nurse that wants to volunteer to go to Livingston, Tennessee, and remarkably, there were a few that became regulars. They did not get paid, mm-hmm. um, who would volunteer to go on the van with us at night because uh, somehow Monday through Friday, eight to five. But you know that was an administrative thing that you know, as we all know, that controls <laughs> some of the decisions. So many, so many breakthroughs in 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 medicine Wait. and care really have relied on just the pure altruism and, you know, energy of, of people who are, you know, willing willing to take a little bit of a, a risk. Correct. And she talks a lot about, uh, as she gets into her, you know, developing this and in her ethics, the calling. She talks a lot about medicine, you know, it was a calling. And she becomes very concerned in the 80s that it becomes a profession to make money. And that was never her experience. So she would um, probably, you know, Beth talked about the environment. Some of those nurses had that calling too. And she demonstrated that in her life. She might have been, she might have been a little tough, no, more than a little tough. They always say she could make grown men cry <laughs> during <laughs> rounds if they didn't know their P's and Q's. But uh, she was completely devoted to it. And so her uh, experience in, you know, her devotion might have been, I would say, probably did encourage the people that she worked with. And um, uh, a lot of esprit, for those who loved her and really enjoyed that, uh, there's a lot of esprit de corps, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, we're getting close to, to the end of the hour. So I want to make sure I have, I have two more questions I wanted to ask you. Number one, um, uh, Dr. Perkett, can you can you tell us a little bit the the what was what's the mystique around the melee rounds? Uh, it seemed <laughs> it seemed like it was uh, quite uh, scary, but also something to be experienced. Can you can you walk us through what that looked like? Well, well I think with melee rounds, uh, whatever was being said, you wanted to be totally up-to-date and completely knowledgeable about your patient. And one anecdote, when I first arrived, I was standing in the hall, and I'd already scrubbed, and we wore gowns, and somebody came in with a baby in an incubator, a transport incubator, and this baby wasn't very sick, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know, 36-weeker. So this person had just come in, and they saw I was all scrubbed and ready to go in the nursery, and they said, would you push the incubator into the nursery, you know, where the spot was. So I said, oh, sure. So I pushed the baby in, and Millie was making rounds. And so she said, who is this? I didn't even know the baby's name. And she said, well, what's going on with this baby? And, you know, I knew nothing. 
And she said, you are a physician who just accepted responsibility for a baby, mm-hmm. and you know nothing. And, <laughs> and she was correct. You know, I really had, you know, one, we'd looked and knew the baby wasn't that sick. But once I put that baby in my care, I was responsible. So that's sort of just a little example. When Millie Rounds went on, it was obviously much more complex because you were dealing with a very sick baby. But if you were going to talk about your baby, you better be totally responsible, totally up to date, fully knowledgeable. If, and you had no excuse of saying, well, so-and-so didn't tell me or this was, you know, if you needed information, you found it. And so right. Millie Rounds were, you had to be at your best and you had to be complete. And Beth, wasn't she, she was really um, uh, strong on you needed to touch and listen and observe that Mm -hmm. child, not rely on machines or data, but your Mm -hmm. hands and your eyes. Yeah, no, that you totally knew your your patient, you know, you knew exactly what the exam was. um, And the the other data was part of it, but you knew your baby. This was your baby. How do you think she would feel about the burden that's now placed on us for documentation, taking us away from the bedside to try to sign all these notes? Uh, Well, she would agree with us. (laughs) 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 That's so funny. Well, I have have one more question. Ben, you said you have one more question. You want to go or you want me to go? Oh, you go, Daphne. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I keep hearing about her, you know, her fierceness really, I think, um, is a good way to, to describe her. And I'm, I'm cognizant of how, um, difficult it must have been though. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like she made it seem difficult, um, to, to be a a woman in, in medicine. Um, and I, I'm sure you have had some of this experience yourself, Dr. Perkett. Um, and I wonder how much of that, um, personality was even potentially, uh, you know, a factor of this environment. You know, it sounds like nobody ever said no to her, but I'm sure that she did encounter, um, and, and you as well, a number of, of obstacles just given our kind of society at the time. Well, no, I think you're right. There certainly were obstacles. I think she very much wanted to just be known as a good doctor and would mm-hmm. really not want to be characterized uh, by her gender. Um, But I do think one of the things I noted is there were male doctors who were fierce, who had colorful language, and that did not get discussed about them. So to me, one of the big differences is people always address, uh, I don't even want to call it the negatives, but maybe the more difficult parts of her personality. And a male doctor with the same characteristics that probably would not be addressed. It would or be just with different words, you know, in terms of um, with strong-willed, you know. And, and yeah, and, and, so and if you just think for, about for the a, words you describe, a powerful male doctor and a powerful female are different. So to me, those were the two things that really became apparent, that people would address that part of her first, sometimes before her competence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a female would be would be labeled as bossy, while a male would be called a great leader. Yes, <laughs> it's the uh, yeah. Yes, it's just, it's, a, it's a struggle still today. Yes. But we're 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 so fortunate to have had you know such strong some strong uh, role models for sure. Mm-hmm. 
Um, my last question is is actually maybe a difficult one, but I'm always fascinated when somebody of the stature of uh, Mary Stallman, when 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 the time comes to step down, right? I mean, in the mm. in the article you mentioned that uh, Dr. Cotton was the one who succeeded her uh, as the second as, as the second division director. I think in 1989. I think Dr. Perkett, you 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 were there at the time. How did that transition happen? How did she take it? Um, I think I, I'm, I'm early in my career, but I have seen all sorts of transitions, some good, some less good. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, how did she take this transition? And, and, and uh, what was your impression of, of that transition as a, as a physician there at the time? Well, Dr. Cotton had worked with her basically from you know, the 70s, you know, early on. And so that... I think he was able to take over because he still allowed Millie in. I think to have hired a totally new person into the nursery, she would have had the challenges that that we see of a lot of people, or you know, when you have your pet project that you've really worked on. But also, if she had developed other interests, you know, she was getting more interested in the pathology and. Um, such so she had other things to be doing that were keeping her going. So I think that certainly assisted with the transition. She didn't need to continue to do this for her own uh, intellectual pursuits. You know, she had other things to do. And one of the things she did when I was there, um, if a baby died, we usually got permission for a lung biopsy. And because this was before of a lot of care these biopsies did not have all the interventions that we do now. And that led to her long-term project with Jeff Whitsitt because she had this trove of tissue um, mm -hmm. of the early stages of respiratory distress syndrome and such. So um, you didn't have all the drugs. Not all the babies had been ventilated if they came in DOA and such. So that kind of provided her a new academic career, which not that many people switch to such a, a different field and just keep going. And that's what she did. I think this is to me the, the, the highlight of who she was as a person, because for many, uh, when that transition happens and you're the division director and you, and you hand off to somebody else, it's usually to just fade in the background. And, and for her, it was the closing, it seemed, of one chapter and the continuation Correct. of other chapters. And uh, I think this is true. This is tremendously inspirational for us as young physicians, because mm -hmm. um, this idea of, quote unquote, the mountain is really not the right one, because you, you always mm -hmm. want to be progressing and, and, and maybe keep, keep moving on to other initiatives, keep, um, building that curiosity and, 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 um, yeah, and, and filling that and, and, uh, satisfying that curiosity, I think is very important. So, um, I'm very happy to hear your answer, Dr. Prickett on that. <laughs> and I do think in those, the end of her career as a derision director and into the nineties, she has, um, I've recently been given a lot of the talks that she gave and we mentioned she was very involved with ethics and she was giving a lot of talks about in those years, um, national and international talks about where's that neonatology headed and and at what point do I mean it's the same talks we hear today about at what level is their viability how much money should we be spending who makes that decision 
how is you know if the physician is um, are we supporting? We put tremendous money into um, the neonatal world, but how much do we put in as a society in the follow up? Mm-hmm. So I think her again her curiosity and her passion, uh, maybe because she trusted Dr. Cotton so implicitly, implicitly she went on to what Beth mentioned as far as um, her academic career, but then her career as far as intellectually addressing those larger social issues, I think really took place in the 80s and the 90s for her. Yeah. And you mentioned in the article, uh, a talk that she gave in 1996 uh, during her acceptance speech for the uh, APS John Howland Award called Who Will Save Our Children? Question mark. And I think um, this is something that is still a question today. And uh, actually, through the podcast this year, we're going to try to have a series of podcasts on advocacy because um, it is still um, an issue of not children not being uh, not not having the attention that they deserve and, and seeing how resources are allocated to adults, sometimes over children. And, and that's something that still lingers. And I think she, as usual, as we've seen through this podcast, mm-hmm. she had the ability to really see where the problems were and addressing them early on. So uh, it's not really surprising. Um, Corey, Beth, thank you. Thank you very much for for making the time to uh, speak with us today. Um, if uh, people want to find out more about Dr. Stallman, is there, uh, we're, as I said, we're going to link uh, the article that you wrote um, on the website. I also found this other article that you referenced in the paper called Fellows Come and Fellows Go. It's a, it's a great, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I really like that, that article as well. Is there any other uh, places where people can find out more about Dr. Stallman that you would recommend? Until the book comes out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, I, I, this sounds you know kind of elementary, but um, her papers are very interesting that she's written, and um, just a quick PubMed um, study because there hasn't been a, or a, a search. Um, yeah. There's she's a member of uh, you know she's an Apgar Award winner. She's a Howland Medal Award winner. Um, but uh, I guess you'll just have to wait for the book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then you'll have to keep us updated so that we can uh, we can revisit it and, and let everybody know when it's out. How about that? Yes. And, and just um, uh, my thanks also to I've interviewed Dr. Burkett, Burkett too. And I think mm-hmm. you can see the quality of people that Millie trained. And, uh, yes. you know, just from this discussion here. And the intellectual curiosity that her fellows and her faculty members had. Um, I learned something new every time about her, like when I talked to, to Beth or some of these other uh, people. And it really wasn't, it, it continues to be, but it was really an outstanding program and people who are passionate about uh, the newborns and the, 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 the neonates. So it's, it's, uh, it's thrilling to see and hear people like Beth speak. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We're so grateful for both of your, uh, your time and, um, your experience and, um, your storytelling. So, um, Corey, Dr. Perkett, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Well, thank you for doing this. Yes. Recognizing Dr. Stallman. Yes. Mother thank Mildred. You for that. Mother Mildred. She was also known. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you for, uh, Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. 
You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICUPodcast or through our website at www.the-incubator.org. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.